0: Ladies and gentlemen, today I've got a very special guest. His name is Carl David Gallery. And Carl is the author of Bader Field. And it's an autobiography of Carl David Struggeth with his father's death that allowed him. Uh, let me say that again. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Alan Steven Leica here. And I have a real special guest by the name of is it Carl David? Carl David, it is. Perfect. right. OK, because the other thing says Carl David Gallery, and I don't I think that's your gallery rather than anything. OK, we'll try again. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special guest today. His name is Carl David, and he's the author of Bader Field, which is an autobiography of Carl David's struggle with his father's death that allowed him to run the Carl David Gallery, his struggle with suicide of his dear brother and his path to success. He's a third generation owner of the prestigious David Gallery in Philadelphia, PA. So if you're from that area, you might have heard about it. He's the author of, and, and of collecting and care of fine art. But truly, he's an amazing individual because where he got to now is one of surviving one of the most difficult things in the world. So welcome, sir thank you it's an honor to be here with you today thank you well, let's take you back many many years when your brother um had some problems and resulted in some more problems for you and the family so let's go back to that
1: okay um we were what we thought was an idyllic american family there were Three of us as as siblings, and my mom and dad, and we were all real close. The only thing we really didn't have was a dog. Um, That's okay. Um, So I was in high school and I was in 12th grade, and one night my brother did not come home, which was really counter to what was normal in our house and in the morning there was an air of malaise like what happened to him where is he was he out with his friends did something happen to him was he in an accident well I didn't want to go to school that day I was a senior in high school and my parents said no you have to go to school Uh, we'll get this figured out whatever it is and blah 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 so I go to school I happen to drive that day and I'm in the assembly in the morning and I get a, a call from the podium from the principal of the school saying carl david please come up to the podium and my heart sank because i knew this could not have been good i had no idea what was coming but i didn't i didn't have the concept that it was anything um pleasant so i go up to the, the podium and the principal says to me you need to go home there's been a family emergency and thank god he didn't tell me what it was so i ran to my my brother's car while i was driving that day and I was home in about six minutes, and my eldest brother answered the door and said, Bruce is dead. And that was my middle, the middle brother, my eldest, next eldest brother. Um, and I almost fell to the floor. I had no idea what happened. It didn't sink in. And he said, he killed himself. And then just my world went black. Sorry.
0: No, Carl, Carl, please, please, you know, I'm going to be bringing back some old memories here. And, you know, although you're a very strong person, you know, you have to be to go through what you've done, those memories are going to flood back and, and they're going to be still painful even now, years and years later. So don't ever apologize. You know, you think you've worked through all those things by writing the book, by, taking over the gallery by doing all no you you know i i think this sort of thing is something you relive over and over and over again and and you know there's always this thing of shame and blame where you look back and say is there anything i could do but you know carl there probably was nothing you could do there, there truly was probably nothing you could do your brother was a smart person. If he wanted it to be known, he was having problems. He would have let it be known, but he didn't.
1: True. I mean, there was no note, no indication. And, uh, you know, it was that morning that my father had found him in the gallery up on the fourth floor. Um, He had hanged himself. And um, I, I can't even imagine the depth of horror that my father felt because he only lived eight years after that. And it took a year or two before the smile would even come back. So, um, yeah, the, the pain is there. I mean, the survivors live on, but we carry that badge of pain with us the rest of our lives. And yeah. you're correct that, you know, the triggers are still there. You, you learn to live with it, but you never get over it. Yeah. And it took a long time for me to realize that, but it, it's the kind of thing that if you try and block out the feelings, they come back and swatch it right across the head. You'll but feel this it. Was-
0: this is why you should never block them out. You know, you have to really feel them. You have to know them. Uh, my sister-in-law committed suicide and the family still feels the pain of that. And they still feel the situation that went on there,
1: you know? Yeah, it's a lifelong wound. I'm sorry for you and your family. No, it's it's a very
0: sad thing. And it, it's, it's a sad thing because, you know, in all this, People go to a very black, black space. They go to a hole where they think there's no way out of it. They think there's nothing that can be done. Now, I have no idea what triggers were in your brother's space. And maybe you know them, maybe you don't. But the point is, he was in a very black hole that he felt the only way out was to commit suicide.
1: And that's sad. That's very sad. It is sad because there was always an avenue for intervention, for help. Um, if if we had had some hint, if he had shared something, whatever pain he was in or whatever he was fearful of, um, we could have helped, you know, and that, that I think that's the part that, First, the first thing that grips you is guilt for not seeing something or knowing something or hearing something and being able to do something. But when there's no indication, it's impossible. And, you know, that guilt eventually turns into anger and then it turns into frustration. And then you live with the ultimate question mark the rest of your life because you just don't know. There was no indication. There was no after indication or, or reference to anything that could have given us a hint so you live with it as best you can and that's the sad thing is
0: that people who commit suicide are often as I say in that very black hole now there are some of the younger generation now taking overdoses and I think many of those are are not just overdoses I think they're they're actually committing suicide very intentional. In yeah I agree and, and I I think it's it's a mass suicide because we're blaming it on the drugs but it probably is not the drugs. It's probably they want another way to get out. And that's the sad thing. And in your father's case, it was probably, you know, he couldn't live with the horror of his son dying. Most of us believe we're going to live. Our, our children are going to outlive us. You know, that's what we all think. But the other way around is not easy to do. It's
1: true. I mean, that's the way it's supposed to be. Your, your kids are supposed to outlive you, not the other way around. So it's, it's difficult. Yeah, my dad felt responsible because he didn't see anything and he buried this within himself and it caused him to have a massive coronary eight years later when he was in Europe. Yeah.
0: And other people bury it by turning to alcohol or they turn it to other drugs or they turn it by by going into deviant sexual behaviors or they turn it into all sorts of crazy things because they're trying to hide the pain of suicide.
1: Correct. And anything someone can do. Uh, to avoid that pain, to suppress it. Um, I was fortunate in having the benefit of a psychoanalysis, which basically saved my life. My parents had seen that something wasn't right uh, with me emotionally. They had the perception to see that and fortunately saved me by guiding me in that direction to get professional help. They also got professional help instead of my older brother. So um, yeah. There's no way you can deal with it on your own. It's too big a death. It, it's just impossible to try and, deal with on your own no and 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 you know when you're and you were
0: very young when this happened you know very very young you know so you did not have all the emotional wherewithal to carry you through with it you know you were you were still a boy so to speak you know Maybe, maybe you felt you were a man but but you were still a boy when this happened
1: i was 16 i was still in my formative years yeah. Uh, but I grew up pretty fast after that. I mean, it's something that uh, immediately thrusts you into an older age uh, where you have to deal and you have to cope as best you can. I mean, we didn't know how this was a an uncharted territory for us, but we pulled together and, and we did it. Yeah. And how did your
0: brother handle it? Your other brother?
1: We kind of leaned on one another um, more so than on our parents. So Alan and I communicated And we talked about it, not so much in front of our parents because we knew they were grieving and we knew we had to kind of support them as they felt they had to support us. So he got professional help as well. He got counseling. And, um, you know, it takes a while. It's a process. It's a journey. It takes years to learn how to get through it, to, to cope with it. So when the triggers do come you're able to get through them. And every time you hear about another suicide, it wakes everything up all over again. Yeah, I say it's like peeling an
0: onion. It takes layer by layer by layer to get down to the core of it. And at the core is something that you still feel the shame and blame. And the only way you can get out of it is forgiveness.
1: Right. You have have to forgive the person. You also have to forgive yourself. Yeah.
0: And... It's not a one time thing, Carl. It's, it's a many times things. You forgive yourself over and over and over because that blow is so heavy that just forgiving yourself once doesn't take it away.
1: You are absolutely correct. Um, it, it's it, it's part of my motherboard now. I mean, it's, it, it's the imprint that left is permanent. So every time a symptom comes up or, or I hear about another one, um, it brings it right back to 1965 in October, you know, when I was 16. Those things don't go away. You are, are totally correct. They stay with you and you just have to be able to deal with them as they come up. It's one battle after another, after another. If you're going to win the war, you have to win all these little battles along the way. Sure. And how did your mother handle it? Um, she had just gotten out of the hospital after having major surgery. And she was shattered. But then with the help of all our friends and family coming together, um, she managed bit by bit. You know, um, she had my dad. And after he died, she didn't want to live anymore. So Mm -hmm. my brother and I rallied and said, Mom, we need you. You know, this is you can't you can't do this. You can't let go. We need your help. And we brought her into the business and we stayed close to her socially and and um, emotionally. And we were there for each other and we all knew that we had to close that gap so that we can move on and survive together. And it was tough for her. She did live to be 94, but she had a mini stroke and she had colorectal cancer, none of which killed her. She survived all that and was a super strong mentor and hero for the rest of us.
0: Well, okay, so if anything could be said, <clears throat> as something that good came out of this, is it made your family stronger? It made you and your brother stronger and also made your relationship with your mother stronger and probably your father until he passed away.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there first there were five of us and then there were four. And we we closed that gap and lived on for my brother and took him with us spiritually wherever we went. You know, and, and this is what I think
0: we've come to realize when we have a funeral in this day and age is you don't celebrate a person's death. You celebrate their life and Correct. all the good things that they had. And and your brother probably had a huge amount of good in his life, although he passed away at a very young age.
1: He did. I mean, he lived a, a brilliant life. Um, he was the kind of guy who could take a car apart and put it back together again. And I tried that once and started a fire with a carburetor. <laughs> I've gotten better at that. Um, but he did. He had so many fabulous um, aspects to his life and with his life. He was just a beacon of light when he walked into a room. It just lit up. Yeah. So,
0: you know, it's sad. And and as I say, even to this day, you probably cannot put the pieces together why he did it, you know, and and. Probably no one knows except for himself why he did it. But there's something dark and evil in his, in that was going on that he couldn't put the pieces together and couldn't deal with.
1: Yeah, he obviously had some demons that we didn't know about. He got very close to the vest. And, you know, at this point in life, um, it, it doesn't matter because uh, we just have to deal with the situation that's at hand. And can we bring him back? No. Do I carry him with me all the time? Absolutely. Have I had signs? Absolutely. And messages. Um, so I know that, you know, death doesn't end life. It just transforms it to a different level. And that life goes on. You can't kill the soul. That I know for sure. Mm-hmm. So that's that's as much as we can glean, you know, from it. And if we had known something great, if we didn't, then we just have to deal with what is what is. So
0: let's move to today when you're doing some amazing things to pay this forward. First, you wrote this book about Bader Field uh, to help people along. Tell us about that.
1: Well, I wrote this book initially to memorialize my family. I knew someday I was going to we'd have kids and they wouldn't know who my brother was. They wouldn't know who my father was. And I, I felt this obligation to tell our story. So I did, but as I wrote it, it was so painful that sometimes my wife would tell me you're intellectualizing, your readers aren't gonna get what you're feeling and they're not gonna understand it and they're not gonna care. So she said, if it's too painful, don't do it. And I said, no, I have to do it. And then I went back and I rewrote and rewrote and rewrote. It took about 10 years to write the book, to make it authentic. And um, I just let my feelings come through and I relived the nightmares and the good good as well as the bad. And um, then I knew that it would be a good book. And when I finally found a publisher, which took an inordinate amount of time, One woman got it. And she said, look, I love your story. I want you to show it, not tell it. And I said, okay, how do I do that? She said, I'm going to give you an editor and she'll tell you how to show it, not tell it. We want you to write it movie style. And I heard movie. Hey, great. This is great. My book's going to be a movie. Now, I was a little naive, (laughs) but optimistic nonetheless. So they gave me an editor who showed me how to write the book. It needed dialogue. And I had no dialogue in there before. So it was two dimensional. It was flat. So when we had a dialogue and I rewrote it with the characters coming to life, then I really understood what it needed. And I knew at that point, ah, people will understand. They'll, they'll feel what I'm feeling and they'll, they'll come into our family as if they really knew us. And the comments that I got after that were just that, wow, I feel like I was part of your family. Wow. I wish I was part of your family. Now I understand. And wow, how lucky you were, how unlucky you were, but what a great family, you know? So I knew at that point that people got it. They understood what I, my feelings and what I was going through and the rest of my family's feelings and how we lived. And it really became three-dimensional, which was important. The dialogue brought it to life. The characters came to life. They were no longer just names on a page. They were alive.
0: So, But you're also doing more than just writing a book. And we'll get people how to tell people how to buy your book in just a minute. But you're also doing some, some coaching for people out there in the community now, helping people that might be in
1: similar situations. So why don't you tell us how to do that, how you're doing that? Well, you know, as I wrote the book, I realized there must be a bigger message that I had to get out there. So I've been doing radio, television and journal interviews since the end of 2008, when the book first got published. It's print on demand. So it keeps going. Um, And I I take my darkest days and do something with them to benefit others. And that's my way of paying forward. I've spoken to groups uh, of people with the idea of suicide prevention and survival because it's such a tough pill to swallow. Uh, people don't, it's not taught in schools and it's something that should be taught in schools at a lower level, in middle school, high school, because their kids are so confused and they're so pressured. So I'm trying to get the book uh, in libraries everywhere and in school systems. It's not for money, cause I don't care about that. I would give the book, you know, if I knew that it would do some good and people would read it. And someone was on the precipice of, Depression, uh, choosing to live instead of choosing to die. That you know, letting them know that there's help out for them out there for them. That they're loved and not alone. This is a different world than it was in the 1960s. So I, I am now trying to work with law enforcement and military to reach out to them because there are more law enforcement deaths in suicide than line of duty, and there are about 20 suicides a day in the military uh, with the veterans, not even counting active duty. So these are the things I'm trying to do to reach out to to just, if I could save one life and I may never know, but I'm putting it after to do just that, to take my, my experience and do something good with it, because that's the only way there's an opportunity to benefit for me to, to pay it forward. Excellent. Well, Carl, David,
0: this show is called how to live a fantastic life. So I'm going to ask you, having survived suicide of your brother and the heart attack of your father, how do you live a fantastic life
1: now? My perspective has changed over the years. And I know that every day I get up as a blessing and that I need to leave my mark so that if I go to bed that night, I don't get up the next day. I did something good to Help somebody else. And I'm in the art business. I'm a writer. I do a lot with law enforcement. Uh, I volunteer. I do everything good that I can do to live a good life and make sure that I've done something. So when I put my head down that night, I can say, you know what, this was a good day. I did something for somebody, whether it was a smile, because you don't know whether the slightest gesture will make a difference in someone's life. Could be a handshake, could be a smile. Could be a donation. It could be anything. So, you know, I love living my life. Now we've moved to Florida. I'm doing my business in a different way than, than we did where I would just sit in the gallery. I'm making network connections. I'm, I'm one day, maybe I'll have my own show, but right? not for my ego, but maybe to reach out on a broader aspect. So I'm, I am living a fantastic life right now and I feel great. I have all these scars within me that need to, be there and awaken when they do, but you can't live your life in the past because if you do that, you'll never experience the present and you'll never get to the future. So the past has to stay where it is. The present is a gift and the future, if you're lucky enough to have it, is where you need to aim.
0: Yeah. One of my dear friends who's been on my show before a girl by the name of Ali has a program called You Are Not Your Scars. And and I think that's important to realize that those scars are good because they give us character. They're good because they move us forward. But we are not our scars. We are not the scars that we carry with us.
1: This is true. I mean, I've got a fabulous wife, two great kids, a magnificent granddaughter. And yes, I have these scars within me too. But you're right. They are not my life. My life is now. My life is what I can do with every day. Yeah.
0: So the flip side of that question that I asked you is, how do you recommend our listeners live a fantastic life? How should they approach it?
1: Tough question. But I think that everybody needs to follow their passions and to be happy if they can. And if they're not, find out why they're not and do something about it and just branch out have friends, um, I don't know, follow your passions is the best advice I can, I can give someone. Yeah, and, and I
0: think you also said it before in that you have a good sense of family, you have a good sense of community, you pay it forward like you have attempted to do. you You do the things that will make a difference on a daily basis. So if your day left... You should be able to be thankful for it, that this was the last day on earth and you spent it the way you felt was best. And I, I think that's very important. You know, I went through a period of time in 2003 when I was told I had ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and was given six months to live. So your life changes from that perspective when people tell you that, you, you know,
1: you, your life changes immensely. It does, and you get wake-up calls along the way. I had open-heart surgery two years ago. Um, I just wasn't feeling right. I knew something was wrong and I decided to chase it down and find out what it was, and my wife said, maybe it's reflux, and I said, yeah, it doesn't feel like it. So I went in, had the the nuclear stress test. Um, they didn't like to be the EKG looked after, and I knew when they, they wanted me to repeat the EKG, and they called the doctor down, and something wasn't right. So they suggested having... Um, catheterization. So the doctor said, you know, over the next few days, I said, no, let's do this tomorrow. So they got me in, got the catheterization and on the table, I hear the guy say bypass. So Okay. So I said, bypass. Yeah. Okay. So we call the surgeon, set up a meeting the next week, week after that, I have the surgery. They replaced four, uh, three, sorry, three main arteries. One was 90%, one was 70 and one was, I guess, a hundred. Um, so, After that, and I was home in four days, and five weeks later, I was driving. They told me it would take six. I kind of broke the rules a little bit, but five weeks, I was fine. Nurses were dismissed after two weeks. I said, I don't need you anymore. I'm up and down the steps. I'm I'm living my life. And at that point, I think, was um, something that gave me a different perspective. I knew I had gotten a second chance with life, and I was going to live it. And, you know, when you get a chance like that, you don't abuse it. You just go and live. You change your, your behavior. Um, you live like a zebra. You know, you, you have these instances of crisis and then you let them go. It's like when a zebra is attacked by a lion, they run, they hide. It's over. They go back to, to drinking the water in the pond. And they go back to their family. And I've learned to live like a zebra where some things just don't bother me anymore like they used to. It's like you said, don't threat the small stuff. My dad used to tell me that all the time because it, it's accumulative, and, and it's cumulative and it'll kill you if you let it. So I'm, I'm a fighter, you know, it's just the one thing that's, exactly. told me so, is that,
0: as I said, I've learned a long time ago, don't sweat the small stuff and it's all small stuff. Right. So right. Carl, how can people, first of all, buy your book? And second of all, how can they find out more about you and
1: the other things you do? The book is available on Amazon. It's available on the iBook, the Apple iBook store and about 60 different digital media around the world. Uh, if you just do a search for "Baderfield" by Carl David, it'll come up in a, in a myriad of places. Um, I have a website which is currently under reconstruction. It was carledavid.com, but it's not up yet. But if you do a search for Carl David, again, I come up and, and but but there's a a number of people called carl david which is very strange to me because i constantly think i'm the only carl david but i'm not (laughs) but uh, the the um interviews that i've done a lot of them are up on on different sites but in Baderfield by carl david the book comes up um it's a great read you can you can download it digitally you can get the soft copy um, and my email is carledavid at gmail.com. I put that out there because if anyone ever is in crisis, wants to talk, I'm not a counselor, but I've lived this experience. So I bring something different to the table and I'm, I'm here to help. I'm here to listen uh, and to refer out to, to other places where you can get help. Because um, To me, that's what it's all about. Thank you, Carl. Well, ladies and gentlemen,
0: today we had a very special guest by the name of Carl E. David. He has a great book called Bader Field. You might want to check into it. And if you need any help in the coaching area, I offer those services. You can get in touch with me through my website, Dr. Allen, A-L-L-E-N, Lyca, L-Y-C-K-A. And the doctor is D-R. Allen, A-L-L-E-N, Lycka, L-Y-C-K-A dot com. And as you can see, I even helped Carl on the site and helped him through, through the moments today. And I do a lot to help people. So please check me out if I can help. Otherwise, check back often because we have a lot of interesting guests and we hope we can talk to you soon.